Hello, my name is Lauren Bose-Byatt and I'm the Deputy Director for Nesta's A Healthy Life Mission. Nesta is the UK's innovation agency for social good. We design, test and scale new solutions to society's biggest problems. Our overall mission is to increase the average number of healthy years lived in the UK while narrowing health inequalities. Our primary focus is on obesity and another area we're exploring, which is a subject of our discussion today, is loneliness. We want to better understand how loneliness impacts somebody's health. It was in January of 2018, five years ago, that the government announced its intention to act on loneliness following campaigning by civil society organisations such as the Joe Cox Commission and the British Red Cross. This time, five years ago, we were invited to a reception at number 10 and excitement was surrounding this area was building. The UK was leading the way in tackling loneliness. Tracy Crouch was announced as the Minister with Responsibilities for Loneliness and later that year, the UK Loneliness Strategy, A Connected Society, was published. The strategy aimed to ground the principle of action on loneliness in government policy, focus on building the evidence base and setting the direction for future development and work on loneliness. We are here to reflect on the legacy of that work and what should be next for loneliness in UK policy. I was part of the government loneliness team and involved in writing this strategy whilst working at the Cabinet Office, along with many other amazing civil servants, the lead minister, Tracy Crouch. Another individual who played a big part was Olivia Field, who I'm joined with today and is now head of policy at the British Red Cross. We worked together closely at the time as we in government took on board the views of civil society. British Red Cross have played an important role on loneliness as a partner member of the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness in their role establishing the all-party parliamentary group and the Loneliness Action Group. Welcome, Olivia. So today we're going to have a chat about the strategy, discuss its successes and failures, and then look to what the future holds on loneliness. We're going to ask some questions back and forth and have a bit of discussion on our reflections from back in 2018 and also what we want to see now. So hi, welcome, Olivia. So I'm going to start with the first question today. So what would you say was the biggest success of the loneliness strategy? There were some really great commitments in there. I think there were about 60 different commitments from eight government departments um, at the time. And the most obvious big one was NHS England's rollout of social prescribing link workers across primary care. Um, because of our own experience of providing social prescribing schemes at the Red Cross, we were like really excited about this. And as you'll remember, we also advocated strongly for it because we ultimately knew that this sort of personalised support can really help to reduce loneliness, quite simply. Um, but there were also kind of lots of other important policies that I think go unnoticed. So government single department plans have to kind of have something, um, commitments on loneliness each year. There has to be an annual progress report from government and I think that's those sorts of things have helped keep the issue alive even though we've had you know lots of changes in government since the strategy was first published um, but most of all the strategy just simply demonstrated the importance of addressing the issue so a wide range of stakeholders from doctors to employers to commissioners now recognize that people in communities are um, physically and mentally healthier and more productive when they feel more connected and that ultimately our public services and businesses perform better when people aren't lonely. Um, I feel like before the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness and then the strategy, loneliness wasn't really a mainstream issue. But now 
it is talked about quite a lot and in my in my both my personal and professional life which shows that it's had cut through and even when it did used to be spoken about people would talk about it in relation to kind of older isolated women which of course is important but it missed out such like a huge number of other populations who are really at risk and I think most people recognize that anyone can be lonely no matter your age and that actually people in quite vulnerable difficult situations might be at greater risk um, but ultimately it doesn't discriminate which was a really important insight for us to kind of spread out to you know all parts of society yeah I can I completely agree with that and also I think kind of reflecting what you've what you've kind of said about kind of putting the issue on the map for kind of wider society and civil society as well it really did within government as well so I think kind of my reflection was kind of working working on this back then as it wasn't kind of being discussed in the same way in government. So I think kind of one of the big first steps was also to kind of get that into the mind of policymakers as well. So that now it's, you know, it's there's a team that still exists and kind of works on this and departments are kind of, as you said, kind of pushed to think about it and include it in departmental planning. So I think that's kind of a massive change as well. And kind of that would have had a big impact and still kind of continues to as well. I was I was wondering I wasn't wondering if we should like dig in a bit more to kind of social prescribing and kind of what do you think's been a kind of big success of it being rolled out more widely because I think my reflection is at the time back in 2018 social prescribing was heard of but it was still kind of not as widely known and it was quite a you know refined group of people perhaps working more in that health space that were aware of it heard of it and really knew what it was so now I feel like it's much more widely known and you know people are way more aware of it than they were before but I wonder if we maybe like dig in a bit more into like what we think the successes of social prescribing have been yeah I would I mean I would completely agree with that social prescribing did exist um often actually in the kind of local council space um, rather than the NHS space. And I think we now have NHS social prescribing link workers embedded across, you know, many communities, um, which is fantastic. But I think even more than that, there just seems to be a growing recognition within the NHS of the importance of meeting people's kind of wider non-clinical needs for their overall health, which is a real breakthrough I mean, for organisations like the British Red Cross, helping people with their kind of wider practical and emotional needs, you know, within the health system for years and saying it's so important that we look at them as whole people and we think about, you know, issues of isolation and loneliness and and, and other things um, in, you know, making sure that they can kind of live their very best lives. Um, But I do think from our own services at the Red Cross, so we, you'll remember, we provided with the co-op um, lots of community connector schemes that really reflect the NHS social prescribing link work model. Um, and we did a, a big evaluation of that. And we know that that really did successfully reduce loneliness. I think two thirds of the people had quite a significant change of levels of loneliness by the end of our support. And, you know, three quarters um, had improved well-being. So it was a successful intervention. But I think ultimately we don't have strong evidence about the you know how social prescribing is working specifically in addressing loneliness um on the ground and i think that's one of the biggest issues with loneliness generally 
it's really difficult to measure and it's also really difficult to invest in kind of big interventions like like they've done in the NHS which is amazing for social prescribing because it is a subjective feeling it affects everyone in lots of different situations in lots of different ways so how can you possibly identify kind of one silver bullet bullet solution do you know and that's that's kind of what social prescribing tries to fix because it's personalised support totally tailored to the individual and it's amazing that there's a recognition of the importance of that but it also makes it very difficult to kind of prove its effectiveness and and I'm sure you have thoughts of that about that Nesta <laughs> um, but it yeah it's difficult you know I've met people who have been helped by social prescribing link workers in different settings um, you know who've been housebound for years who you know didn't open their curtains didn't make medical appointments didn't get dressed in the morning no longer had any friends or family that they spoke to and after two months of this kind of personalized support their whole lives have been turned around I've seen how it can work has to be done properly but evidencing that scale is really difficult and I think it really helped to put this kind of like personalized care on the map as well you know I think I think it was kind of already but specifically for loneliness, I think it really, 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 really helped to do that. But I also think what kind of a wider benefit on social prescribing is as well is that it does help for a range of other issues. So whilst it's incredibly important for loneliness, what it makes it a kind of good intervention is that it can be used for other issues and kind of it taps into that fact that, you know, we'll both know that often someone experienced loneliness that probably isn't the only thing that's going on in their lives and you know that's going to be compounded with other issues so the ability to offer this personalized care that will tap into a few different issues is kind of really critical to actually making a difference and that's probably why we've kind of uh, you know it it is that effective intervention in that space i know that generally social prescribing link worker models when they struggle it is often because there isn't the kind of right social and community infrastructure within that place so if someone's helping someone and they need you know access to mental health or social care or or less formal support just fun activities that might interest them um you know the difficulty is the link workers often don't have anywhere to help people access so that is a massive issue it was an issue for our services and anecdotally I understand that's that's still an issue I'm sure the cost of living crisis and the pandemic has not helped that issue in any way um so you know as we look forward and I know that this has been kind of a priority at least in principle is to fix that aspect of it but there needs to be a better mechanism for link workers to kind of feed in the most prominent gaps in their places and for the communities then to have some way of accessing the funds to fill those gaps. And that's a difficult thing to ask decision makers to do when money's really tight. You know, it was difficult even before. Uh, I think, but I can't evidence it, that it would be worth it. Um, it's a false economy not to invest in addressing loneliness. And um, we know that you know severe loneliness costs the public purse a lot. That it costs in, it costs employers. You know people who are often lonely are much more likely to go to A and E. You know stay in local authority residential care, um, go to their GP, and perform poorly at school and at work. So it makes sense to invest in it, but it's really difficult to make that case, um, especially now. And I think that also kind of takes me on to like reflecting on what I'm 
you know, like looking back to kind of the work that we were both doing and, you know, we were kind of consulting very closely with civil society, so yourself, um, on it. And kind of it takes me to kind of thinking like what what could or should have we done differently back when we were doing the strategy as well. And I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is is that kind of piece that you mentioned. I think probably two parts really kind of stick out for me. One is around the measurement and how maybe we could have done a bit more on really understanding, you know, how do you measure this as an issue? How do you think about kind of proxy measures or alternative measures? Because as you say, loneliness is a subjective measure. So it's really difficult to, you know, find a really good way of understanding the impact that different interventions are having. And then I think the second thing for me that um, is also, which, which you've kind of touched on as well, was this kind of, how do we help the social prescribing system work more effectively? So what can you put in place to make it easier? So how do you give the link workers better understanding and easier access to the support and services in their way and how do you really streamline that and make it you know as efficient as it can be so you're kind of making their job easier and making it much kind of quicker and easier for them to do the work that's really important that they need to do and obviously part of that is making sure that um, the services and support exist in their local communities in the first place as well so I think um, while while we try to in the strategy to kind of push forward on measurement and on the kind of improvement or modifications to social prescribing. I don't think it kind of quite got to the point that we would want it to. And, you know, it's hard to in your first strategy to kind of do that. You can't kind of achieve everything. But I think those are mine, my key reflections on that. Yeah, I think the strategy did a really good job laying the foundations for a more connected society, but it hasn't done that in itself. You know, I think the strategy was very clear that it, you know, to achieve a more connected society, it would require kind of, I think it said a generation more policy work and investment. And I think government actually has done, you know, we've been monitoring at the Red Cross and part of the sector you know, for five years now. <laughs> They've done a great job delivering against those original 60 commitments. But we haven't seen the same level of ambition and momentum you know, since that time and changes in leadership in a pandemic and now cost of living crisis, you know, like obviously hasn't helped with that. Um, but to really achieve a connected society, a lot more needs to happen. And I think one of the things that I reflect on a lot is, is, is speaking to what you're saying is if I was to go back in time, I think that I would have pushed more for the role of local authorities and investment in local action and, thinking about kind of longer term sustained funding for local areas to kind of identify the barriers to connection, working directly with people who were experiencing or particularly at risk of loneliness in their areas and resourcing that, asking government to resource it because we know loads of local authorities really want to work with partners to address the issue, but they just don't have the time or money to do it properly. Um, but it would need to be significant investment because, yes, we've done a great job as a whole society, I think, tweaking services um, and, you know, specific interventions. But there's just so much more to do to kind of invest in that wider community infrastructure. There's been kind of government funding for voluntary and community sector, like grant funding, but they're quite short term and... They can only work well, you know, in a wider kind of rich ecosystem that's kind of built to connect people. So 
if I was to go back in time, that's what that's definitely what I would change and focus more on. Um, and I know it's a big ask and it requires big investment. And then that comes back to the evidence issue. And how do we evidence what works? But I think it would start to answer that a little bit more because those local areas, if they're working with partners to really address an issue locally, um, it would be much more meaningful. You'd get much more specific solutions. You'd look at kind of whole system approaches that I think can be really effective and really are the only way to address an issue like loneliness because as we've spoken about, loneliness is interconnected to so many of the other big issues you know health the economy (laughs) access to services etc and I, I also think kind of when you're talking about kind of like the local infrastructure and the kind of role for local government as well kind of often what you're talking about there or kind of what you're trying to get to is also this kind of sense of like having stronger communities you know having those kind of assets that you need and and kind of uh local areas and communities that kind of are you know we've seen seen kind of on the de- decrease and you know that kind of lack of services and support and infrastructure that's needed so kind of essentially what it kind of boils down to is that kind of strengthening that kind of social connection and the ability to do that and the strength of communities to play a really strong strong role in that as well yeah definitely i mean loneliness is has to be addressed at kind of all levels at the kind of individual community whole society levels um it is multifaceted and there are so many kind of different triggers for it and therefore different solutions you know that can happen at absolutely the individual level but it's usually interconnected to kind of access to services or being able to get the bus somewhere that you kind of rely on to maintain friendships um, or being able to access data so you can stay in contact when you're shielding for example during the pandemic we saw that as a big issue you know these these things are all connected and therefore require kind of multi-level solutions um, and stakeholders to kind of really be invested in addressing it I also think linked to that I I don't I think it's increasingly recognized now as an inequalities issue but I think at the time I don't think we appreciated how much loneliness is connected to um you know wider inequalities but we now know that you know people living in the most deprived areas um are at a greater risk of feeling you know regularly lonely you know people who have long-term health conditions which is also linked to inequalities and unemployment and low income like these are all um inequality issues and that again links to this kind of infrastructure problem that we are seeing in those particular areas um and loneliness you know should be part of that kind of debate Yes. Yeah, so when you kind of look at the kind of wider um, health outcomes as well, you can kind of see those on a geographical and regional level as well that you see kind of quite stark disparities. So we at Nestor are looking into um, healthy life expectancy and healthy years lived. And in that, you know, you see a significant um Uh, you know decrease in the number of healthy years that someone can live by their region that they live in and by the kind of area that they live in so I think that's reflected across a range of different health metrics and includes loneliness as well yeah absolutely and I think going forward we need to be really aware of that particularly you know with the cost of living crisis now you know people in certain areas are going to be hardest hit and we need to remember that's going to have a knock-on effect on things like loneliness. That's probably a perfect segue into my next question, which was going to be around kind of given the con- current context and where we are, what you think the biggest challenge for tackling loneliness is? Yeah, well, basically that. So 
you know, look, millions of people, as you know, of all ages, um, already feel always or often lonely. But, you know, Red Cross research and actually the many, many surveys and studies out there now on loneliness as well has found that people out of work or on no or low income and those living um, in areas with higher deprivation are more likely to feel always or often lonely. We also know that there's a direct link between mental health and stress, including financial stress um, and loneliness as well. Um, and I mean, at the Red Cross, we're already seeing um, the impact. We, we are helping lots of people who can no longer afford to maintain, you know, relationships that are important for them. So they can't afford to, you know, get transport to places. They can't afford data to keep in touch with friends and family. They can't even afford, to, you know, to host people at theirs because they can't um, afford the extra food or the heating. Um, but beyond that, we also know that kind of financial stress um, has an impact on people in a way that kind of makes people um, kind of forget what their like real identity is, which makes it much harder to connect with other people in a satisfying and meaningful way. So I'm deeply concerned, as I'm sure your colleague, you and your colleagues are at Nesta, about you know the cost of living crisis, especially combined with the effects of the pandemic. You know, it's very likely to exacerbate loneliness, which is already just such a huge issue anyway. But it's what we saw in COVID is it's particularly likely to impact those already living in the most difficult and vulnerable situations. Um, and of course, you know, alongside this, not only will people be struggling more, but, you know, government and others who are likely to fund loneliness interventions um, are likely to have less <laughs> expendable money to address it. And, you know, I said earlier that not investing in loneliness is a false economy, that we know that there are very likely going to be cost savings in the longer term by investing in it. But it's difficult to make that argument um, when money is so tight uh, and you can't see the immediate effect of some of these solutions. Yeah. And I think there's a kind of risk in some of that as well. And I, I think I've heard this phrase used before of kind of when money becomes tight and when public then spending becomes particularly tight, then you almost also risk a kind of social recession where because kind of people's lives are becoming, you know, everyone's struggling with kind of paying their bills, with, you know, having multiple stresses that are that are kind of occurring, the kind of often the impact of that can be on kind of your social connectedness and, and kind of some of your relationships and your ability to kind of invest time and headspace and all of that in those types of things. So I think it kind of that makes it kind of even even kind of more important to be thinking about this at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. I think and I, I feel like people are so exhausted after years of the pandemic and all the kind of personal sacrifices that people feel they've had to make already and now they're having to do this and it just feels a bit relentless to people. I mean, it, we know that the effects of the pandemic, and we talk about it as though it's something in the past is still going on, but, you know, the effect of the kind of lockdowns and, you know, changes to society are still impacting a huge number of people and, and actually some people are still shielding and isolating, so it hasn't gone away and then on top of this now we've got like kind of deep financial stress amongst many many people I, it's gonna it already is and it is going to affect our relationships I think on the other side it's so important you know 
in that situation, it's really important that people do maintain those relationships because we know actually that does help people um, be more resilient in the face of crisis. And we see that at the Red Cross all the time. More connected individuals are much better able to cope and recover from emergencies. Um, it just, it, so, you know, it's so important basically that we don't forget how important loneliness is at that kind of individual and kind of society level. And and, and I guess kind of linked, linked to some of that as well, I think kind of one of the challenges that loneliness faces now is, I think kind of back in 2018, you know, people had been working on loneliness for a while and organisations had existed for a while, but it very much felt like there was quite a solid argument to be made that the evidence itself was still emerging and, you know, there was still still things to do and things to uncover and, you know, strengthening that evidence base was required. But kind of we're five years on from that, so it feels, you know, it's, it's harder to make that case, harder to say, you know, we just need a bit of time to build the evidence base because, you know, the argument can argument argument can now be made that you know it's been five years since the strategy what next so kind of I think that's uh, that's a kind of another thing and kind of us at Nesta are thinking about you know well how can we contribute to that how can we think about strengthening the evidence base further and kind of really getting into this understanding between the links and links between loneliness and health and really understanding what impact that might have in a way that kind of takes it beyond kind of correlated evidence to really try and understand um, what might be going on. But I do think kind of given the kind of, you know, tight resources that we're going to see, the kind of tight public spending that's probably going to follow, that having that strong evidence and a strong case for investment and a strong sense of what works and being able to evidence that and the cost effectiveness of different policy interventions will be really critical to getting it over the line. So I think kind of putting putting effort behind that is a kind of valuable and really important thing to continue to do in this in this context as well. Absolutely. I mean it's I think there's a lot of evidence to show and in some places it could of course be stronger but there's good evidence to show that you know loneliness is a problem when it comes to solutions beyond kind of very individual very kind of specific interventions for very specific cohorts of people it's really difficult to evidence what works and that isn't and that's for all the reasons that we've touched on already and it's already a problem in terms of you know securing big longer term investment so now, given the economy, it's going to be even harder. So yes, please, Nesta, do more of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we plan to. We plan to. Um, I was, I was wondering if um, one of the, I guess, kind of one of the uh, kind of other other questions um, is kind of, I guess, given the context that we're in at the moment, and kind of if you did, if you did have to put your kind of effort behind one area or one intervention or one thing that you know you're really passionate and hopeful about if you had a sense of kind of what that would be given given where we are at the moment so look I think choosing one thing when it comes to loneliness is just really hard because like we said already it touches so many people and it's so interconnected to so many other big issues um that you really can't solve loneliness through just one intervention um but the all-party parliamentary group on loneliness um, carried out an inquiry into kind of government progress and what should happen next a couple of years ago. And I think all of its key rec- 
recommendations um, are still really critical and all still stand. And, you know, there's definitely a need for kind of continued cross-government national action. But there is also a huge need, as I've touched on already, for that national policy to translate into local action. And what would really make a difference, I feel, for people and communities on the ground is if local authorities were encouraged to develop their own strategies, co-designed with their own communities um, through national funding and um, support and guidance. And alongside that, I think there's a real need and I can get really excited speaking to experts in this field around kind of loneliness proofing, the design of our residential and public places and um, and our transport strategies and kind of looking at gaps in transport, not just from a kind of perspective of, you know, where can buses or trains go that's going to take people to kind of high streets or medical appointments, but thinking about those kind of more social activities and leisurely activities that really help people to maintain relationships. We've spoken about the investment in community <laughs> infrastructure, but then the other I think we haven't spoken about which is so important is the need to close the digital divide so I think it's like really shocking that despite how much is online these days including kind of social activities you know 10 million people in the UK still lack basic digital skills and about 2 million households struggle to afford internet access you know that's I think that's shocking given how digital everything is now but I think if, if to, to sort of answer your question, efforts behind one thing is to focus on those things, but focus on areas with um, higher levels of deprivation in the first instance, um, where we know they're likely to be struggling across all of those briefs um, a little bit more than some of the other places. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I guess kind of in an environment where you're going to have you know fewer resources perhaps to work with. And, you know, you're thinking of how those issues are compounding and how to deal with them. And that does kind of seem to be seem to be the way forward. What would your what would you put all of your effort into? I mean, it's really, really hard. I think I still would back social prescribing. I think the thing I go back to with social prescribing is it is kind of tailored interventions, which, you know, it's it's a referral mechanism. It's a bit more than a referral mechanism. Obviously, it's kind of, you know, guiding people through that whole process and in a way that's kind of more, you know, tailored and intensive and kind of really walks them through the whole the whole system. But I do think its ability to be so versatile is incredibly important. But I think, as we said before, if that, you know, if you're a social prescriber in a local area and you're very limited of what you can send people on to, you know, if you're very limited by what's, you know, able to operate in your area, if, you know, small charities are closing or there's a lack of community infrastructure where you are, then social prescribing can only ever be as good as the services it can link to. So, even though I say social prescribing, I think the kind of community and social assets bit that sits behind it and how you enable communities to develop that, maintain that, make sure there's a really strong um, civil society sector that's able to deliver some of that as well is really, really critical. Um, and as I said, we'll have like a range of positive outcomes. It potentially won't just kind of help with loneliness. It will help with a range of things. And I think also, I guess what I also think about is like, obviously we know at the moment, the kind of real pressures that the NHS is under and that kind of our healthcare systems themselves are under and, and kind of advocating as we are, and I, you know, like, well, as I do for social prescribing, I think 
in part kind of speaks to that, you know, how do you reduce demand that might not be needed on certain types of services? So, you know, are there instances where people are using GP services where perhaps, you know, their issues could could be resolved elsewhere because you know there's there's a way of kind of signposting them to other things that they might need so i think it speaks to some of that i know it's kind of not exclusively to be used in that way but i think it could could potentially help with some of that as well yeah and i think i think it's important to remember the importance or the relevance of things like loneliness yes within kind of primary care and that gp space but it it goes beyond that as well so at the red cross we help people who frequently attend a and e sometimes you know hundreds a couple of hundreds of times a year and they usually have a range of clinical and non-clinical um, problems but loneliness and isolation are very prevalent among um these populations and you know the our interventions we provide high intensity use services our interventions on paper are really simple we're just providing people with kind of personalized support practical and emotional help helping people access you know wider services that aren't in that acute space um and really successfully help a lot of people to stop their repeat attendances to A&E but also to go on to live kind of much better more fulfilling lives um so I guess something that we need to consider doing and I know there are already movements towards this is but to be thinking about how do we kind of apply some of the learning and the rollout of social prescribing link workers in that kind of primary care space and think about where that needs to go next. And I don't think it should be the exact same social prescribing link worker model that we're seeing in the primary care space in other settings, but it's the principle of providing people with that personalised, tailored support and um, that goes beyond just the kind of immediate obvious need, whether that's clinical or, you know, in totally other spaces, for example, at the job centre, whether that's getting a job or something kind of wider that someone might need a little bit help, of help with. Yeah. And I was going to kind of come and see because we tried to do some of that in the strategy in terms of kind of piloting a role like the social prescriber in kind of different settings and and looking to settings like the like a job center where we already know that people kind of out out of work or kind of unemployed may experience higher levels of loneliness so we kind of know that that exists so thinking about what are those tailored settings where we already know there's a heightened or increased risk of loneliness and how you might come in um kind of tackle those and address those and really tailor the support in those settings as well Thank you very much for joining me, Olivia. It's been really great having you and really great catching up again. So I'm very excited that we'll be able to work together again in the future. Oh, thanks, Lauren. It's been great chatting. And it does, it, it kind of takes me back to five years ago when we were just all working together to produce this kind of strategy that I think, you know, we've come a long way. At the time, it was completely new. You know, government had never said this was a priority before. And then they did all of these great things that we've been talking about, but there's still so much more work and yet yeah, looking forward to working together on, on next steps. To find out more about the work of Nesta and what we're doing on the health and loneliness space, please do visit our website at nesta.org.uk. And thank you very much for listening as well.